You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody to today's show, um, One Hour at a Time. We have with us today as a guest, Tom Coderre, who is the Director of Faces and Voices of Recovery. And um, Faces and Voices of Recovery is... Uh, grassroots recovery advocacy um, organization that uh, supports campaign across the country. Um, Tom has an extensive background in government and politics, which he'll talk to us about. He served in the Rhode Island State Senate from 1995 to 2003. He spent many years in nonprofit management and development as a professional fundraiser and executive director. He's a person in long-term recovery, which means he hasn't used drugs or alcohol since May of 2003. He first became active in recovery advocacy as a board member of the Rhode Island CARES, which is Communities for Addiction Recovery Efforts, and served as the chairman of their advocacy committee. Tom continues to live in Rhode Island and travels extensively promoting faces and voices of recovery advocacy efforts. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island um, College. So welcome, Tom. Can you first begin to tell us a little bit more about faces and voices of recovery and how it got started? Sure, Mary, and uh, thanks for having me on the show today. This is a wonderful opportunity uh, for me to be able to talk a little bit about Faces and Voices of Recovery. I'm the National Field Director for Faces and Voices of Recovery, and so I have the great opportunity to travel around the country and see so many of the things that people in recovery are doing. Uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery is a relatively young organization. Uh, We were started back in 2001 when recovery advocates from around the country came together with some national allies uh, to launch this nationwide advocacy campaign. I think a lot of people at the time were thinking that there were many, many issues that were affecting people in recovery or people trying to find recovery. And one of the thing that, things that was missing from the public policy uh, debate, you know, all the facts and the figures are good to go to the legislature with or to go to the Congress with and to advocate for your position. But what was missing were pe- real people's stories. And so Faces and Voices of Recovery attempted to and has been successfully, over the past eight years, getting people in recovery trained to tell their story, uh, to talk about their recovery so that people people can see that millions of Americans are in long-term recovery and are enjoying that today. And I think that's so important because we know that um, addiction and substance use disorders are treatable illnesses. And we also know that the access to care is really poor. And with other illnesses, such as mental illness, HIV, AIDS, there's been a real um, outcry from families and concerned persons about, you know, um, even breast cancer. You know, I, we, you know, our family member doesn't deserve to have this illness. We want somebody to treat it, and we want to treat it now. And, and that hasn't been true with addiction and substance use disorders. So, faces that, and voices in recovery is really important. Well, that's true. I mean, I think one of the things that we we have done is we have defined the recovery community as being people in recovery, um, also family members, friends, and allies, that the recovery community is this large tent of people uh, who have come together and have been touched in some way by addiction, have gotten to the other side, and have found recovery. And we also, as an underpinning philosophy of Faces and Voices of Recovery, believe that there are many pathways to recovery, uh, that, that people don't find recovery all in the same way, that some people come to recovery through a mutual support group, some people have had access to professional treatment. Some people use non-traditional methods or medical interventions. Uh, 
some people uh, are in recovery because they got connected with some type of faith-based program or, or had found recovery through uh, their church or synagogue or temple. And, and there's many, many other pathways to recovery. So, Tim, um, you were a part of the uh, political process, and um, you also are a person in long-term recovery. So how did those two parts of your life come together? Ah, that's very interesting, Mary. <laughs> the the way it came together for me was um, I ended up losing everything through my active addiction. I built quite a life for myself. Um, at a very young age, I got elected to the Rhode Island State Senate when I was 25 years old. I was a state senator. I was a state senator for eight years. I was a member of the Rhode Island uh, State Senate. And we have a part-time citizen legislature in Rhode Island, so I also had uh, another job, and that other job was in nonprofit management and development. So I had uh, two very successful careers going, and I couldn't cope with the stresses that I was experiencing uh, through those uh, through those careers and through other areas of my life. And I turned to alcohol and other drugs to cope. And I ended up becoming addicted very quickly. My life started a downward spiral. I started to lose a lot of the things that I cared about. My family and friends tried to help. I resisted their help and pushed them away. Uh, this caused me to lose them. I lost interest in, in my jobs, uh, my position in the Senate. That caused me to lose those. I became homeless. Um, at the end, I lost everything, even my desire to live. And so at some point in time, something had to give, and I... Uh, there was an intervention by a judge. I ended up getting arrested for possession of uh, narcotics, and through that arrest, I was offered an opportunity to go to treatment. And it was in professional treatment where I found recovery, and I started rebuilding uh, my life. And it's interesting that um, you know once I found recovery, I got hooked up with, as you mentioned earlier, Rhode Island Cares, which is Rhode Island Communities for Addiction Recovery efforts, and they were doing a lot of advocacy work down at the state house, and when they found out that I was a former legislator, obviously they latched on to me and they said, "Oh, have we got a job for you?" And I ended up becoming uh, I joined the advocacy committee and eventually became uh, chairman of the legislative day and then chairman of the advocacy committee. And it was really a great recovery support for me because once I uh, found recovery, went through treatment, and then started living in a recovery house, I was looking for ways to. Uh, reintegrate back into into my life and the things that I enjoyed and loved the most. I didn't know whether or not I would be able to do those again. And what uh, recovery taught me is that you can do whatever you want to do. You have these new skills um, and this new ability uh, to really to really approach life in a whole different way. And that's what I did. And so now getting involved with Faces and Voices of Recovery on the national level as the national field director and being able to affect change around the country in that way has really uh, helped me see that perhaps uh, there was another purpose for my life and that I can still combine uh, my love of politics and my love of advocacy and combine that with now my newfound love for recovery. And I think that's so important, and I really applaud and thank you for your work because um, having people, quote-unquote, come out of the closet about their recovery is so important, and um, it's such it's such a wonderful thing to celebrate that people Absolutely. should be able to talk about it and not feel any kind of retribution oh. or discrimination as a result of having... It's interesting. Um, I, actually, I actually had the reverse happen to me. 
you know, because that's the fear. Uh, the fear is that when you get into recovery, um, that you have to be quiet about it. And we have, uh, you know, I happen to be a member of a, a mutual support group, a 12-step fellowship that uh, really cherishes the principle of anonymity. And a lot of people misunderstand that and think that the principle of anonymity means that you cannot be public about your recovery. And that's just not the case. Um, I, you know, I have to uh, certainly make sure that I follow the traditions of that fellowship, but at the same time, I can still tell my recovery story. And one of the things I found out that when I started doing that, when I started telling my recovery story, was that um, my fear was that people would shun me, that I would be judged for that. And the reality of it was that that didn't happen at all. In fact, people embraced me, um, and they um, they came up to me, and they gave me love, and they hugged me, and they and they congratulated me. And that is the type of response that I got from my community when I uh, so you know quote unquote came out of the closet about my recovery. Uh, my addiction was very public uh, because of my arrest and because of who I was. I wanted my recovery to be public as well. And for those of us who it makes sense for to do that, uh, you know, I always encourage people to check with their you know family and their friends and their work search circumstances. But if it makes sense to, to be public about your recovery, I encourage everyone to do it. So uh, the community is so welcoming uh, to hear our stories and to really understand. I think at the heart of it, there's a misunderstanding. There's this, there are these negative public attitudes about addiction and recovery because people just don't have a clear understanding of it. And until we stand up and until we tell our stories and until we help people, educate people, and help them understand exactly what this is about, uh, we're going to be continued. We're going to continue to be in a rut and not be able to have access to the types of services and care we need because public policymakers, and, you know, as you mentioned, I'm not only in recovery from addiction, but I'm in recovery from politics. Uh, public policymakers, they understand one thing and one thing only, and that's that their constituents have, uh, have the ability to uh, vote them in and vote them out of office. And so they're going to support things that their constituents and believe in. So we have to tell our stories so that the public has a broader understanding of addiction and recovery so that public policymakers will feel comfortable making sure that people have the services that they need uh, to get well. You know, I'm only on this radio show today because I had access to treatment and recovery support services and the things that I needed uh, to get well. And if, I, if it wasn't for those services, I wouldn't be here today which is a nice segue into um, access to care and the availability of services because we know that services have dwindled over the last 10 years and access to care is uh, pretty bad at this point. But there is some light that we've recently signed the Paul Wellstone and Pete Minchie Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. So could you tell us a little bit about the act and what this means for folks out there who have addiction and substance use disorders? I sure can. Um, you know, on October 3rd, uh, Congress passed and President Bush uh, signed this new law, and it was part of the economic, economic, uh, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act. That was that the so-called bailout bill, and uh, what I'm now calling the Economic Recovery Bill, uh, because because it has this provision in it. And this law is really the beginning to the end of insurance discrimination facing people with addiction and mental illness. Um, the victory came after years of advocacy um, that picked up pace over the last two years 
under the leadership of Congressman Jim Ramstead, who is a Republican from Minnesota, and Congressman Patrick Kennedy, who is a Democrat from Rhode Island. He's actually my congressman. And they were joined by the House and Senate leadership, um, including Senators Pete Domenici, as you mentioned, Senator Kennedy, uh, Senator Enzi, uh, and uh, Senator Dodd, in providing the congressional leadership that led to the final passage of this act. And we we helped organize recovery advocates from across the country, um, and we were joined by David Wellstone, uh, the son of former the late Senator Paul Wellstone, and we did countless call-in days, email campaigns, visits with members of Congress um, at home in their home districts and in Washington, and we also worked with the media uh, to tell the story of insurance discrimination. And this victory would not have been possible uh, without the tireless. Um, efforts of advocates all over the country and allied organizations that we worked with. So I want to just say that as a backdrop to talking about the actual legislation, uh, and I'm sure people want to know what it means, what does this victory mean. But I think we're going to talk about that when we come back. Yeah, we'll take a quick break, and Tom will get into the specifics of the Wellstone and Dementia Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions, please call in. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Today, our guest is 
Tom Coderre, who is the National Field Director for Faces and Voices of Recovery. And before we went to commercial time, you were going to tell us about the um, Mental Health and Addiction Parity Act, what it does and then what it doesn't do. Yeah, a lot of people are really interested, Mary, in what this means for them. And so when the law goes into effect uh, next year, it won't go into effect until October 3rd of 2009, uh, group health plans that offer coverage for addiction and mental illness are going to be required to provide benefits in the same way as they offer them for all other medical and surgical coverages. So what that means is that they are no longer going to be able to impose different limits on inpatient days or outpatient visits or require higher deductibles or cost sharing when people are seeking treatment for addiction um, or mental illness for other covered medical uh, or surgical procedures. Um, So the victory also means the voices of the organized recovery community and our allies um, were really heard more than ever before in the nation's capital so that we were able to make sure that a better bill passed uh, than, um, than was originally proposed. So this law is actually going to apply to all group health plans with 51 or more employees. It's going to cover 82 million individuals in self-insured employer health plans that are not governed by state parity laws, and another 31 million in plans that are subject to state regulation. Because of our, our tireless advocacy efforts, if your state law is provides greater protection than the federal law, your state law will, will preempt the federal law, which is great news. So that all the advocacy work that's happened um, in Pennsylvania, in Vermont, in other places around the country, those stronger state laws will um, preempt the federal law. The federal law, however, will preempt any state laws that are weaker. So if your state has a weaker law, the, state, the federal law will then be in effect. And so what does it mean? So for out-of-network coverage, um, it's going to extend out-of-network coverage for substance use disorders and mental illness where there is out-of-network coverage for medical and surgical conditions. So I think the important thing for people to realize is that everyone will not be covered by this. If you're currently in a health plan that doesn't offer coverage for addiction or mental illness, that health plan is not going to be required to offer it under this new law. The only health plans that will be affected are ones that currently cover mental illness and addiction. And the way they'll be affected is that they'll no longer be able to impose uh, different limits, again, on inpatient days or outpatient visits or require higher deductibles or cost sharing um, when people are seeking treatment for addiction or mental illness. So we don't want to say that this is the panacea, so to speak, that this is going to be uh, the bill to end all other bills. We still have a lot of work to do on an advocacy front. But what this does say for the first time ever ever, is that uh, insurance discrimination is not, is not legal in this country, that insurance companies have to treat addiction as the disease that it is, and we have to start treating this public health crisis. And, and that's a very important statement, Mary. Oh, it's, it's, it's huge. And I guess this, um, I'm going to just put this question out there. You don't have to answer it because it may make you uncomfortable. But I, but I really and truly believe that um, people with substance use disorders and discrimination face, dis- I mean, in addiction, face discrimination in many different areas, and one of which I truly believe is health care. I've seen this at a local hospital here in Manchester where 
um, you know, we took a participant to the emergency room and he was treated in a very disrespectful way only because he was intoxicated. Um, you know, I think that um, people... I don't mind different. talking about that a little bit. Well, okay. But I, but I really think that this does come down to the issue of discrimination and that we need to set a foundation so that we can do... Um, we, we can start, you know, using the legal system to help end the discrimination. No, I, I totally agree with that. And one of the things that Faces and Voice of Recovery has been working on is to really empower the recovery community to understand what their rights are. And because I think a lot of people in recovery um, or people who are seeking recovery don't have a real clear understanding of what kind of rights they have. And, I, you know, for whatever reason, I, and I think part of it is because of the negative public attitudes, the stigma that exists out there in society so that it makes people who have an alcohol and drug problem feel like they are responsible, uh, that it's their fault, and so they feel very disempowered in that regard. And they all of a sudden think, well, this is all my fault, so I don't have a, I, I don't have the right to expect the same level of care as somebody else, or I don't have the right to go into an emergency room or a hospital setting and say that I'm sick and that I need help. And that's just wrong. That's plain wrong. So we developed a tool that we're using called the Recovery Bill of Rights, and it's a statement of principles. There are 11 principles in our Recovery Bill of Rights that help lay out for people in recovery or people seeking recovery what rights they really have. Things like we have the right to be viewed as capable of changing and growing. We have the right as do our family and families and friends to know about the many pathways of recovery, the nature of addiction and the barriers to long-term recovery in ways that we can understand them. We have the right whether seeking recovery in the community, a physician's office, a treatment center or while incarcerated to set our own recovery goals and working with a personal recovery plan uh, that we have designed based on accurate and understandable information. We have the right to select services that build on our strength, armed with full information about the experience and credentials of the people providing those services and the effectiveness of those services. So there are many different kinds of uh, statements that this Recovery Bill of Rights makes that helps people understand that they actually they are worthy, they are worthy of these rights, and that they deserve to be treated like any other human being when they access services. You know, I think that's so important because um, one of the ones in terms of, uh, the one you just mentioned, in terms that people have a right to select services that build on their strengths, armed with information about the experience and credentials of the people providing services. I can remember when somebody would say, you know, um, are you in recovery or are you not in recovery? And the, the stat answer was, you know, um, why is it important to you? And it was seen as some type of a personality disorder kind of question when the reality of it is is that I certainly ask all my healthcare providers where they went to school and what kind of experience they have. So there's even within our profession, there's kind of a double standard, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, we have to be careful of that. And, I mean, I think one of the other uh, great points in the Recovery Bill of Rights is that we have the right to respectful, non-discriminatory care from doctors and other health care providers and to receive services on the same basis as people do for other chronic illnesses. And this gets to the whole issue of parity. It also gets to the issue that you're referring to when somebody shows up in an emergency room or a doctor's office. Uh, they can't just be turned away. Right. That's, that's not humane treatment, and, and we can't be treating anyone like that. And you know, what's really important, um, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and there was a woman from our di division of 
uh, Child and Family Services who said, you know, if somebody, if like a mom or dad comes in for a family visit and they have a dirty urine, even if they didn't use that day, they're not allowed to see their children. Mm. And that to me just is so wrong, you know, um, that there needs to be a way to help people, um, first of all, see that this is a, a disease and um, and to help work within the family that, you know, I did something five days ago. It's still in my urine, so I don't get to yeah. see my kids today. You know, what other disease would we do that to? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. Yeah. And, and furthermore, I bet you those people um, are sent away without any referral to treatment or referral to, to, to any types of help that they might receive. Uh, usually uh, that's what the case is, and, and, and that's wrong, too. Well, they're sent away with the threat of if you do this again, you'll never mm. see your kids, or you'll lose. You know, you won't see your kids next month. Yeah, or, we and we know how we know how effective that is. Right, right. Yeah, you know, we know that when families are involved, people do much better. Of course, for, they do. You know, and the, and the recovery rates are, are much higher. So. And, and we have to have yeah, we have to have family involvement in in people's recovery. I mean, people in recover people who are seeking help, people who are seeking to find recovery and sustain their recovery for the long term. They need to have the support of their family and friends. And if they don't have that, if we limit that or if we put barriers in the way of people having that, it's, it's going to affect that person's ability to get well and stay well. doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's a lot of discriminatory public policies. Uh, one of the ones that Faces and Voices of Recovery was successful in fighting against was uh, there used to be a policy that said that if you had a drug conviction that you were not eligible for federal student financial aid, which right. absolutely makes no sense right. because people who were finding recovery and still had perhaps a possession charge or some type of drug-related charge on their record, but they found recovery and wanted better to, wanted to better themselves, be able to get a better job, be able to improve themselves in, in any way by going back to school, were denied those benefits. doesn't make any sense. You know, you know that if you offer somebody an education, if they get a better job, their likelihood of staying and sustaining their recovery for the long term um, increases tenfold. Well, and how ironic that, and this is probably not the best example, but our current president mm. is a person who stated um, publicly of being in recovery. So, I mean, if he was held to the same standard, to that standard, you know. Yeah, would he have ever been elected? No. Yeah, no. this is true. So Although, we, that's a whole other show. but <laughs> That is, indeed. In fact, uh, speaking about the upcoming election, we're very, very excited about uh, the fact that for the first time ever, the recovery community is really getting engaged in the electoral process. Uh, we have uh, a project called Recovery Voices Count, where we're registering people in the recovery community to vote, educating them about the candidates who are running for office and their positions on the issues and also making sure that they get out to vote on Election Day. So this has been a great, great campaign for us, and we'll hopefully be able to talk a little bit more about it in the next segment. We will. We'll be right back to talk more about getting the vote out in the recovery community um, with Tom Coderre, the field director, the national field director for Faces and Voices of Recovery. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. Today, our guest is Tom Coderre, who is the National Field Director for Faces and Voices of Recovery. And before we went to break, you were talking about the Get Out the Vote campaign that you guys have. I also know that you can go on your website and register to vote as well, right? You, you sure can. You can go to www.facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. Um, many of the state's deadlines have already passed, but there are, are still some states that have uh, have time left. There's Time has not run out yet to register, and some states have same-day registration. So please, uh, wherever you are around the country, check uh, with your Secretary of State's office or your local board of canvassers and find out exactly what the rules are there. Our uh, our efforts have been tremendously successful, though, all around the country as people are making their voices heard in, in our Recovery Voices Count campaign. Uh, we've done intense organizing um, in 12 states around the country and we have had um, groups that we relate to do projects in almost every single state in this country, uh, town hall meetings, public events. We've had Rally for Recovery events all over the country uh, where people have been registering voters 
educating them about the issues that are important to the recovery community, and then getting people to sign what we call voter, voter pledges, where people are pledging to vote on November 4th. So it's really exciting that the recovery community is being seen as the constituency of consequence that we know that it is in our, in our country's uh, political life. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about the, uh, the Bill of Rights and, and what it means, I, I, don't, I just don't think we can underscore enough how um, beaten down people with substance use disorders and addictive disorders become as a result of the shame and guilt that they experience. And, and you know, to a greater extent, it's people perceive this as, well, they do it to themselves. So, um, and, and I think that that's really important to to talk about because it's a chronic illness, much like diabetes or heart disease. If, if I, you know, have heart disease and I don't lose weight and I don't exercise and I continue to eat a lot of trans fat and smoke and I go in for another um, coronary bypass, nobody's going to say, well, you did this to yourself. I'll get, you know, treated very well. I'll get state-of-the-art heart treatment. And, um, I, you know, people aren't going to characterize it in the same way as if, um I had five years of recovery and just, you know, my kids went off to college and I relapsed because I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah, the people have a lot of different, um, a lot of different things that will occur in their lives and and if their only coping mechanism is to um, seek out uh, alcohol or other drugs, uh, that's what they do. And so giving people an opportunity to find recovery and sustain their recovery for the long term uh, is something that benefits the entire community. And we really need to, as a society, invest more in recovery support services. Recovery support services are helping create communities of recovery around the country. Uh, and re- the recovery community is organized in what we call recovery community organizations. And so you can go, to, again, to our website, www.facesandvoicesofrecovery.org, and check where there's a recovery community organization in your neighborhood. And get hooked up with that recovery community organization. They do a lot of different activities. Some of them provide peer-to-peer support services. Some of them are very involved in in advocacy. Um, And still others have a lot of safe and sober social activities that people can engage in, which really is a help in terms of if something like that happens, if, uh, for instance, a person who has been, as you mentioned, um, in recovery for five years, and has a life-changing experience, like their kids going off to college, uh, that they are connected with the recovery community and that people know that that's happening in their life and they can support each other. And, and I think it's so important, too, because um, oftentimes people who have substance use disorders or addiction end up losing their license. They end up, you know, they're not able to drive, but they still need to get to work. They need to get their kids to school. You know, they need to be able to get to their uh, treatment appointments. So it really does require a lot of resources to help support someone in their recovery. It does, and uh, but it's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be expensive. No. Um, one of the great things that recovery community organizations have done, they've found ways to do these things um, very inexpensively. There's a great recovery community organization in Connecticut called CCAR, They've developed programs and projects where they're peer-led programs. For instance, they have a telephone recovery support service where they people can sign up for telephone recovery support and a volunteer, they, they, they harness uh, the inherent nature of people in recovery to want to give something back. A volunteer will call 
that that what they call the person they call the person a recovery. They'll call the recovery once a week for 13 weeks and ask them how they're doing. And if they need additional calls that week, they'll step them up. So those are very inexpensive ways to deliver recovery supports. They've also through um, access to recovery, which is a federal initiative, a federal grant program, they've been able to to peer up people with services so that somebody can walk in uh, with a voucher, for instance, if I need uh, child care, um, so I can go to work. I can I can get a voucher for child care, walk in and purchase those kinds of services, which are helping ultimately helping my family, but helping me stay clean at the same time because I'm going to jo- a job, I'm working regularly, I feel like a productive member of society. So it, they, these things have uh, all sorts of domino effects as well. Um, during the month of September, we had a few uh, people on to talk about Recovery Month and um, some of the activities that were going around. But now that it's been over for a few weeks, what has been the effect of Recovery Month and what kinds of things have we um, learned from that? Well, that's my favorite topic to talk about, Mary, so thank you for bringing it up. I mean, this year's Recovery Month was better than ever, and there's a lot of impact that it had, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But let me just give your listeners a little glimpse into what happened around the country during Recovery Month this year. There were almost a 1,000 Recovery Month events that happened this year around the country, um, and that, those you know, really consist of all different kinds of events. So there, they, they could be somebody having a, a, a barbecue in their backyard and inviting uh, all the people in recovery in their community to it, um, right up to a large-scale rally, like one that happened in St. Louis, Missouri, as part of our National Hub event, where uh, thousands of people um, gathered together on uh, a bridge that connects, that crosses over the Mississippi River and connects Illinois to Missouri, and they held hands and connected uh, the two states, kind of, um, for, you know, kind of, Symbolizing East meeting West and recovery connecting the entire country. Um, so there were all sorts of events and everything in between. Uh, recovery Month is a very, very important month because it gives us an opportunity to get out there to tell our stories, to let people know that recovery is a reality in America, that there are millions of people in recovery, and that uh, you know that that it's possible. It's possible, and that it's important to support it as well. So when we when we think about all of these activities that happen in September, are there other things that go on for the rest of the year? Uh, there are. I, I, I always like to say Recovery Month is all year round <laughs> because while we give it special attention and focus in September, these events are really happening all year round. I just attended last night a town hall meeting in Richmond, Virginia, where uh, about 250 people came out uh, to have a community conversation with the local elected sheriffs and to talk about uh, treatment alternatives to incarceration and to talk about how the recovery community can help provide peer-to-peer recovery support services in jails so that people who are getting out of jail have a better chance of making it so they don't recidivate back in um, after their prison term. A very, very important discussion for the community. And these are the kinds of events that continue to happen throughout the year. Also, we're coming into the holidays. The holidays can be a difficult time for people in recovery. Recovery community organizations around the country host all sorts of events around the holidays so that people in recovery can come together. And they're usually open to the public as well. So if people from from the public want to come and, and find out more about recovery or what's happening in their recovery community, uh, they can do that. 
I, I, I have another example of a great event that happened in Recovery Month. Um, Faces and Voices of Recovery partnered with um, the A&E Television Network and the NCADD, uh, uh, the, the National NCADD chapter, as well as SAMHSA and Partnership for a Drug-Free America to host what we call the Recovery Project. And this was an event where we marched across the Brooklyn Bridge. There were 5,000 of us. Uh, that gathered in Camden Plaza in Brooklyn, New York, uh, for a morning rally, an early morning rally, and then marched across the Brooklyn Bridge uh, to City Hall Plaza on the Manhattan side, and where we heard performances from uh, Rufus Wainwright, who is in recovery himself, and we also um, heard from you know a variety of recovery speakers who talked about what it meant to be in long-term recovery. There were recovery delegates, one from each state and one from the District of Columbia. So we had 51 recovery delegates who talked about their personal recovery in a very meaningful way. And A&E Television uh, taped the entire event, and are, they're going to be doing a program on television. As you are aware, Mary, the A&E Television Network has a, a, you know, a variety of programming about addiction, like their show Intervention, and they also have a recovery show as well that they're promoting. So they, they have made a commitment to making addiction recovery one of their corporate causes, and, and we're grateful to them for that. You know, I think, um, does every state have some type of a recovery organization? It does. It does. Yeah. I know in Vermont there are some, like, uh, drop-in centers that are connected with the recovery organization. Yeah, we call them recovery community centers, and that's a that's a growing uh, that's a growing fad. I shouldn't call it a fad. It's a, it's a, grow, it's, it's a growing opportunity for people um, in communities to come together and create a safe space for people in recovery, to have meetings. Uh, they offer recovery support services in these recovery community centers. It's a very, very exciting concept, and people can learn more by going to the Faces and Voices of Recovery website, www org to see if there's a recovery community center in your community. You know, this is also exciting because 20 years ago, nobody talked about all this stuff, and I think that it's just wonderful that there's a website, there's a national organization, a thousand activities in one month. I mean, that just really speaks to how far we've come. Um, having said that, I, I don't think we can rest on our laurels. No, certainly not, but... But I think it's important to celebrate our success and what we've seen. I mean, even in my short five and a half years in recovery, I've seen a big difference in terms of people coming out and telling their stories and being public about their recovery. Um, there's been just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for people to, uh, you know, be able to speak out and to, to really grow this national movement. And we'll be right back for our last segment with Tom Coderre, the National Field Director for Faces and Voices of Recovery. If you have any questions, please call us. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to our last segment. Um, Our guest today is Tom Coderre, who is the National Field Director for Faces and Voices of Recovery. And one of the things that we were talking about in our last segment was the Bill of Rights um, that people have in recovery. And I think that um, one of the most important things that uh, one of the rights, it's number 11, is that we have the right to speak out publicly about our recovery, to let others know let others know that long-term recovery from addiction is a reality. And um, if people are interested in learning more about Faces and Voices or learning on how they can, you know, talk about their recovery without violating any kinds of traditions of any support groups they may be in, um, how should they go about that, Tom? Well, I, I probably should have mentioned that when we talked earlier, but we've, we have a wonderful brochure that we've produced. It's called Advocacy with Anonymity. And that's available at our uh, website, www.facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. And it really guides people through the 12-step fellowship traditions. So if somebody is a member of a 12-step fellowship like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous um, or Al-Anon, they can actually um, pick up this brochure and learn about traditions 6, 10, and 11, which govern the spiritual principle of anonymity that's so important to protecting the 12-step fellowships. And uh, they can learn language that we've developed at Faces and Voices of Recovery and trained folks on um, about how t- they can talk about their recovery publicly without violating those traditions. We can have you give a, an example of some of the language that one might use? Sure. For instance, um, you know, I refer to myself as a person in long-term recovery, and then I let people know what that means, which means that I haven't used alcohol or drugs since May 15th of 2003. But I don't just talk about the fact that um, I stopped using alcohol and other drugs, and that's what my recovery is all about. I also talk about the fact that I've been able to create a better life for myself, for my family, and ultimately my community. And I talk about some examples about that, about how in active addiction I lost a lot of the things that I enjoyed, and that in recovery... I've been able to regain those things. The relationship that I have with my family today is second to none. You know, my parents, my brother and my sister, uh, my nieces and my nephew uh, are really part of my part of, part of my life in so much um, greater a way that today than they ever were. I talk about the fact that I've been able to reconnect with 
the things I loved, like politics and, and advocacy. I talk about the friendships that I've been able to develop. All the positive things that recovery has been able to give me, uh, I talk about. And I don't get into a lot of the stories about my addiction because I think uh, that oftentimes people in 12-step fellowships have been trained in a certain way to talk in a therapeutic environment, a safe therapeutic environment about their addiction. And out in the public when we're talking with folks, we really want to avoid doing that. We want to talk more about our recovery and why, what that means to us, our families, and the community at large. And the fact that you pay taxes and yes. um, <laughs> and you can vote. And, we do all those wonderful things. Imagine yeah. that. And, and, yeah. and, and that is, that's, that's really the essence of it. Uh, that that we're just like everybody else, that because we may have had a problem with alcohol or drugs doesn't make us different from everybody else. Um, I have some things I do to maintain my recovery, but other than that, uh, I'm just like everybody else. Um, I think the other thing, too, that, um, and this, this is kind of a, kind of goes in with the whole discrimination discussion we were having earlier. But when um, one of the recovery bill of rights is that um, people have a right to be considered as more than a statistic, a stereotype, a risk score, a diagnosis, or label, or a pathology unit, that they they can be free from the stigma that characterizes people as weak or morally flawed. And if they relapse and begin treatment again, they should be treated with dignity and respect that welcomes our continued efforts to achieve long-term recovery. And I think that speaks as, to the great world, but it also speaks to the, um, the treatment world as well. Sure. And, and I think it's, it's, it's something that you talked about earlier, that sometimes we can be our own worst enemies, you know, that um, we need to make sure not only that the outside world is not discriminating against us, but that we're not internally discriminating against each other, um, that we don't, that we don't, uh, I think it's important to recognize uh, that there is, this is a chronic illness and that people, um, that relapse can be part of somebody's recovery and that if that should occur for somebody, we need to make sure that we welcome them back, that we, again, treat them with the dignity and respect um, that they deserve uh, and that will help them get back into recovery and start start their journey of recovery over that much faster. Well, I know at Westbridge we try to work very hard um, and we work with people for long periods of time, excuse me, and, you know, sometimes people relapse or sometimes people haven't made a decision to be sober, and that doesn't mean that that's an excuse to not have them participate in treatment, that we try to be creative about how do you you work with somebody who's actively using and not fall into that old way of thinking, well, if you're using, you know, they can't access treatment, or I won't see them today because they're under the influence. That's when they need help the most. Sure. No, I I totally agree. And I think we have to understand what people's goals are, too. Um, For instance, my goal, my goal was abstinence. Uh, I knew from a variety of uh, relapses and and failed attempts at recovery uh, that that was going to be an important goal for me. But just because that's my goal does not mean that that has to be everybody's goal. And I know that's controversial. I know that for some uh, folks in recovery, uh, that's hard for them to accept that somebody's goal might not be abstinence. But we have to make sure that that we meet somebody where they are, that uh, if somebody's goal is not abstinence, there may be a reason for that. 
and that everybody is not created equal on this um, on, on this scale of addiction, and that we have to make sure that we meet somebody where they are, that we offer them the same types of services and the help, uh, so that they can live a productive, normal life. And if should their goal be abstinence, we should respect that. And if their goal is not abstinence, we need to respect that as well. And we need to find more effective treatment interventions for people who are under the influence or who are still um, struggling with the fact that they even have a substance use disorder, that to just say someone's in denial and send them out the door is really not effective. Right. I, I totally agree with that. And, I, you know, we've worked uh, very hard with, um, we've, uh, with NIDA, uh, the folks at the National Institute on Drug Abuse and NIAAA, uh, to, to try to, you know, make sure that those interventions um, get out into the community. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, with NIDA recently is a new training called the Science of Addiction and Recovery because there's been a lot of science out there about addiction, but there hasn't been a lot of science out there about recovery. And we need to make sure that the proven methods, as you talked about, uh, the strategies uh, that have worked for people, uh, that those are uh, packaged in such a way that they can be replicated and that they can be offered people in communities all over this country. What is the science of recovery? Well, there's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. We don't, we don't have a lot of information about it right now. Um, as a country, we spend most of our resources studying um, addiction. Um, there's a national survey on drug use and health, which I'm sure you're aware of, that is published every year. And it's about, costs about $60 million a year to do that survey. And they can tell some. They can tell uh, you very specifically what kinds of drugs are being abused um, on what street corner in Indianapolis, Indiana, at a certain time of the day. But when it comes to recovery, we haven't done the types of research that we really need to do to identify that. So, what Faces and Voices of Recovery did is partner with the Northeast ATTC, the Addiction Technology Transfer Center, and what we're doing is we had a a two-day um, symposium in uh, May where we started the process of figuring out what kinds of research we need to do on recovery so that it can become just as scientific as addiction has been t today. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's exciting work. And yeah. uh, it's being you know spearheaded by, by folks like Bill White, uh, who is a renowned author and recovery advocate in his own right, People like Mike Flaherty, uh, who's the director of the ATTC, uh, my boss, Pat Taylor, the executive director of Faces and Voices of Recovery, and, and many other partners uh, from around the country. So you'll keep us posted on that? Absolutely. Well, so what's next for you and Faces and Voices? What's... Well, one of the things that, that we really are looking forward to in, in 2009, we're going to have a new administration uh, in, in the White House no matter who wins the election, there will be a new administration. And we want to make sure that we work with that administration to make sure that they have uh, the same recovery-friendly policies that we support uh, as part of uh, their, their very first day in office. In addition to that, we um, are going to work. Uh, we know that there will be new ideas in the new Congress about how the direction we should move with health care. And we want to make sure uh, that we can continue to strengthen uh, the parity bill that passed. We also have a brand new recovery advocacy toolkit that we just launched. So we're going to be 
making sure that that gets around the country so that people have access to be able to use that. So we have a lot going on in 2009. I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. And if people want to contact you, the best way is? Through the Faces and Voices of Recovery website, www.facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you for sharing your recovery with us. And have a great week, everyone. Thank you, Mary. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness.